Before we begin today, I want to draw your attention to uh, what should be at least one of them on each of the uh, rows. It is the com a copy of our proposed new church covenant. We began this discussion back in December. The first draft was proposed in March, and the final draft was proposed in June, and it's been attached to the church emails that have been going out. Um, but this is it in its entirety. And then on the second page is uh, your opportunity to give any feedback. Lord willing, we will be voting on this and bringing it into the life of our church as our church covenant that we commit to each other. So if you could, if you have time, obviously not while I'm preaching, Lord willing, but between now and when you leave, uh, just circle which of those represents you. If you do have any concerns or questions, uh, you can write them out. And please uh, talk to me, uh, email me, uh, smoke signal me, whatever, uh, if you have any concerns or questions. Uh, but just indicate your response so that when we do vote together on this, on next Sunday, Celebration Sunday, that it is something that is not abrupt or just like a a brief business meeting, but that actually represents something that all of us together as members of this church uh, believe. So any, if you are a member of this church already, it also includes a covenant uh, that already exists for our church, just as a reminder and a comparison to the two. And then the last page is the biblical references for the uh, wording and the phrasing of each of the phrases um, in the covenant that's being proposed. So Lord willing, we'll, we will vote on this and it will become our new church covenant and uh, we will read it together as a church uh, on Sunday. So that's my prayer and I'm saying this as uh, an attempt to be a good pastor and to try and lead us all in the same direction. And uh, I also say it in meekness and in much trembling because I, I do see this as an extremely important thing. Uh, this isn't just something that's on the books in the background. This is something that I want to be a part of our fellowship. That when we gather for business meetings or the celebration services, that we read this to ourselves and to each other as a group, and it becomes an integral part of our life together as we remind ourselves and exhort one another to what God has called us to. Okay, with that said, if you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, I will read verses 7 through verse 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So this is the last message in a series over Jesus' prayers. I said last week that this phrase... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears has captured my imagination as I think it did the author of Hebrews and the writers of the hymn to which it is appealing. 
And more than any other thing, this this passage singles out Jesus' prayers on our behalf as the best example he has in the life of Jesus to explain to us what his ministry to us as our great high priest means. And so what we tried to do is look through the life of Jesus through all four Gospels and, and highlight the prayers of Jesus. And we've, we've actually touched on every single prayer of his that's mentioned. Some of them we do have the content of his prayers and some it's inferred. It's either just a prayer of thanksgiving or he prays and then he goes and does a miracle or he prays and then he goes and chooses the apostles. And last week we looked at... Uh, the high priestly prayer in John 17 for the majority of our time. And I believe that is one of, if not the most uh, intricate and glorious chapters in the entire Bible. And so uh, we're not going to revisit that today, but just know that there's more in that prayer than we could cover in 30 minutes. And so I would just encourage you again, as you seek to understand Jesus if you want to know him and move towards knowing him more, that that chapter is a really good place to start because it both gives you the loftiest glories of Jesus and his role towards you as your high priest and how he administers this new covenant, but also very basic, tangible things by which we can live our lives. And I will just say that on every Sunday... There is a world of evil directly opposed to you hearing the sermon. Whenever the word is preached, the enemy is at work to keep people from seeing the glory of Jesus. And he can't do that very well with believers, so he tries distractions and anxieties and disunity. And then there's also the problem of the dullness of hearing that the author of Hebrews mentions in verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 11. And the enemy is also set against the messengers. Pray, uh, Paul often asked his hearers to pray that God would give him boldness and even give him words to say. So I thank you for all of those who pray consistently and earnestly for this moment, for this time, that it would be sanctified and that the word of God would actually go forth. We need that, and I would just ask you to pray all the more for that. The whole spirit behind this series in particular, and I would argue the whole spirit behind what the author of Hebrews is doing in bringing up Jesus as your great high priest, is that he wants you to know Jesus as he really is. And I don't want you to be comfortable continuing to live in and be satisfied with the elementary teachings about Jesus. This is exactly where we're going to move the week after next, after a celebration service. He says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Then he says in chapter 6, we will only push forward towards the mature teaching, teachings of Christ if God allows. We need grace to understand. And I understand that every time we come into this room, I'm asking you to do a lot of thinking and a lot of listening. But all of this is merely in line with what the Bible is and who your Lord is. If the Bible were an easy book, 
and your Lord were a little God, then we could have easy little sermons. But as it is, the Bible is difficult. And it's magnificent. And the Lord is grand and majestic and unfathomable. So as a limited and flawed minister, I seek every week to try and bring to you the treasures of the divine. and To just show you what I've found. Understanding that that's limited, but, it, but in an attempt to generate an appetite in you to see more that's there. I want you to know God. To enter the inner chamber. The Holy of Holies. The very throne room of God. That is what you have the opportunity to do every time you encounter the Word of God. As the, one of the great preachers of the past said at the conclusion of every one of his sermons, now let us bow in humble reverence before the majesty of our God. This Bible is not just words about God. This is the very Word of God. And when we preach and when we read the Bible and when you listen to sermons and when you engage in it, we're not just presenting to our minds images of who we might be. You're being given, if you're a believer, real spiritual sight of the very God we're talking about. And we're not just giving a historical portrayal, a biography of Jesus. Through the Word of God, by the Spirit, you're being given sight of the real resurrected Christ with the eyes of your heart. This is a stunning privilege. So as we look at his prayers, Jesus's prayers, probably more than even the high priestly prayer with his prayer in the garden, you get to see into the inner chamber. And I want you to have the strength to do that. And I also want that strength. So we're looking at seven prayers, actually. There are technically three prayers in the garden. There are three prayers from the cross. And then there is one prayer in Emmaus. So Lord willing, we will see the glories in each of them. And just as a preface, if you want to go ahead and turn to cha Matthew chapter 26. This is the prayer in the garden before our Lord is betrayed. Matthew 26. What I've done, when I, when I speak this, it's going to include, and I'll tell you when, it's going to include the other data that we have from Mark, Luke, and John as well. So they all kind of give a different take on this evening as they all had their own unique perspectives and they emphasize a little bit of things here, a little bit of things there. But we're using Matthew as the main structure, and then I'm going to throw in different things from Mark and Luke, and at the end, John. So this is beginning in verse 36 of Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, 
even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed. This is from Mark 14. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And I'll resume in Matthew. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then this is from Luke chapter 22. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now we resume in Matthew. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. And Mark, in Mark 14, he says, praying the same words. And here's how Matthew records it. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words. And when he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then from John 1811, this is after the betrayal, after the arrest and the ordeal with Peter's sword. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? This passage and bringing in everything else that we know from the other gospels is the most literal and tangible example of what the author of Hebrews says Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. This is probably the most intense and consequential prayer of all eternity. If you think about what's really going on here, just ponder what is happening. Jesus is facing the prospect of going through what we call his passion, but is taking our sin on himself and dying in our place. That's about to happen. And at that prospect, he sees it. It's not like it's taking him by surprise. He's just closer to it. And he says, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup. Let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will but as you will. So all of our sin, all of the consequences of Jesus dying on the cross, which brings us salvation and eternal life, Jesus looks at what he has to go through to accomplish that and says, if it is at all possible, Father, let this pass from me. It's massively consequential for yourself and myself and everyone else who's ever lived. He's asking out of severe agony and distress of soul to be spared this cup. So we need to ask an important question. What is this cup? 
There's only one explanation that makes sense. If you want to turn to the Revelation to John chapter 14. John, uh, the Revelation to John chapter 14, beginning in verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed him, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, those worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. The prophets as well bring in this imagery of God's wrath and his fury and his anger against sin as a cup. A cup of the wine of God's wrath. And Jesus sees this cup. And he sees that he must drink it. And he prays fervently, Lord, let this pass from me. That's what it has to mean. Because you could ask in this instance, is Jesus weaker than a martyr? You read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you have people who suffered pains identical to or even in some cases worse than a Roman crucifixion for claiming the name of Jesus. And there are martyrs of other religions who have suffered greatly and they approach their doom boldly. Without trembling in fear, there are moments of strength where you can persevere great trial. So is Jesus weaker than a martyr in this case? Is he falling apart at the seams, sweating drops of blood, literally, because he just doesn't want to endure pain? No. It's that Jesus is going to suffer in a way that no one has. He will drink the cup in full. And so he pleads with the Father for it to be taken away, for it to pass. Yet, not as he wills, but as the Father wills. Just as an immediate response to this, I want you to be stunned by your great high priest. We know that he did drink the cup for you, for your sins, for mine. I want you to be stunned by his love that a prospect that horrifying of drinking the cup of the anger of God's, the fullness of God's anger and his wrath towards sin, Jesus drank it in full for you. If you move beyond being stunned and aghast by the love of God in a way that transforms every day of your life, you've, you've left the gospel. It's unexplainable. It's not reckless. It's just infinite. I want you to be stunned by his sacrifice. There is real loss in the cross. How great the pain of searing loss. I want you to be stunned by what he endured. 
for your sake, for mine, for the glory of the Father. I want you to see your God. I want you to be stunned by his holiness. That this is what it took to forgive you. God doesn't sweep things under the rug. He buries them in the bottom of the sea because his son drank the cup for you. I want you to be stunned by his grace. This wasn't the process of an appeal. This wasn't us organizing a committee to petition heaven that God would send a savior. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All of your sins were future sins when Christ drank the cup in full. Even while we were enemies, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, this happened. I also want you to have the gravity needed in your heart regarding the Christian life. This is what it took for Christ to forgive you, for God to forgive your sins. This massive, infinite movement of grace and mercy towards you. I want you to be breathtakingly moved towards holiness. This is the gravity of do's and don'ts for the Christian. It's not just a new written code. Christ died for your sins. The gravity of obeying him is the gravity of his sacrifice for paying the penalty of your sins. What have we done? We have destroyed God's only son. This is why the cross is offensive. There are many other reasons why the cross is offensive, but what the cross says is you are so bad. Sin is so bad and so offensive that the son of God himself had to drink the cup of God's wrath in full so that you could be forgiven. And unless you believe in him, there is no other forgiveness. Because that's the only way wrath can be taken away. That's why it's offensive, brothers and sisters. And if you sacrifice any part of that, you lose the gospel. We need to know who God is. We need to know who we are. Let's go back to the prayer. How does the Father answer Jesus' prayer? If you only know one version, or if you look at a surface level, you might just think it's silence. That God doesn't do anything. That there's no answer. That heaven is an iron ceiling, even to the Son of God. Do your prayers feel that way sometimes? You pray, you're in agony of soul. Maybe you've never sweated Drops of blood, literally, but it might as well have been. And heaven feels like an iron ceiling. No answer. When you don't get the answer you oh so anxiously want. When you offer up, literally, loud cries and tears. There are at least four instances in my life where that has been literally the case. And I have not gotten the answer that I so desperately wanted and needed. What do you do? What we tend to do is we ask for smaller, easier prayers. 
because the pain of disappointment, if we approach God with that degree of vulnerability, is too disappointing. How I want to encourage you is this. God does not respond with silence. Either here or if you're in Christ as a believer ever, it is not just silence. According to Luke, an angel appears to Jesus and begins ministering to him. And it's not just as we've said before that just weird spiritual stuff happens whenever Jesus is around. This is God's answer. He's sent by the Father as part of his answer. Help. Help to endure. Help to make it through what Jesus is asking. If it's at all possible, Father, let this be removed. And the answer isn't exactly what Jesus wants, but the Father sends help, strength, encouragement. Sometimes the way the Lord answers your prayer is to let you go through the thing that you are praying to avoid or to not give you the thing that you so desperately want. And instead, he gives you strength in the inner being so that you can endure. And he may send a brother or sister in Christ along to be that angel towards you, to help you, to give you endurance This is why we spent so long on the verse, exhort one another every day, because there are people in this room who are literally some uh, in some cases must be, if just by the numbers game, playing, praying to God every night earnestly. I mean, I hope that's happening. I hope we are all together on our own, praying earnestly to God and maybe some of you with loud cries and tears. And you very well may be in this room, a member of this church together or a faithful attender because you are God's answer to them to give them strength, to minister to them. Because God's not going to give them what they're asking, but he's going to give them you. It's also evident that this is part of the father's answer because Jesus's prayer changes slightly. You're reading really close. You see that a few of his words change or the, the order of them. If you go back to Matthew. After the angel appears, I brought that in from Luke chapter 22. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter to temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if This cannot pass unless I drink it. Your will be done. Mark says he prayed the same words. It is pretty much literally the same words, but the order has changed a little bit. The only thing that's really moved is where he puts the knot. Please let this pass, yet not as I will, but as you will. If this cannot pass, unless I drink it, then your will be done. Are you willing to move your not when God does not answer the way you want, the way you deeply desire, even when it's with loud cries and tears? If 
you want to, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 4. I can just read it if you're tired of turning around to different places already. That's okay. 1 Peter chapter 4. Remember, Peter is there. Peter's there witnessing this, and here's how he encourages the brothers and sisters that he's writing to who are experiencing persecution. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. This is verse 12, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Note that he says this is a fiery trial that has come upon you. Not just a trial, not just something you've got to endure, a fiery trial. And he says that we must share in Christ's sufferings. There's a participation with the sufferings of Christ for the believer. And he says that judgment is coming and it's going to begin at the household of God. If you're not in Christ... Judgment day will not go well for you, my friend, and you will enter a long, drawn-out process of drinking the cup as well. It's also according to God's will that you, as a Christian, are suffering. Those who suffer according to God's will must entrust themselves. This has the same flavor of what Jesus is saying, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is entrusting himself over to the Father. And how else does the Father answer? It's not just that he offers help to endure the trial. If, you go, if we go back to Hebrews chapter 5, read it at the beginning of every message here for the last five or six weeks as we've looked at it, especially these last four. He was heard because of his reverence. He offered up loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. When we talked about this passage in its entirety, I mentioned that even though he was a son, just as the text says, even though it was inevitable that Jesus would rise from death, even though death could not hold him, if you were in a position one day to ask the Father, why is it that you raised Jesus from the dead? The answer based on this text is this. Jesus prayed to me reverently with loud cries and tears. He was heard because of his reverence. So how did God hear? 
How did God answer? He raised Jesus from the dead. He's not just able to save him from death. He's able to save him out of death. That's what the phrasing means here. So in a way, God did let the cup pass from him. Because every other person outside of Christ, when you're made to drink the cup of God's wrath, it is an eternal cup. But not for Christ. Why? Because all of that eternal wrath was poured out on him. It's uncomfortable even saying some of these things about God's wrath, about our sin and about the necessity of a substitute. So to summarize God's answer to Jesus, the cup cannot pass from you, Jesus. It can't. I will pour it out in full measure, but I will help you right now, and I will raise you up after you have drank it. And after Jesus is done with his prayers, and after his knot has moved, he's now resolved. We see this from the passage in John 18. He says to Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He's resolved in his spirit to do what the Father has given him to do. What about you? Are you living your life in tangible enough hope in the resurrection that even if that the resurrection is God's main answer to your prayers, that you're not disappointed? Let me explain that. For Jesus, God's main answer, the Father's main answer to his plea, his loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death is after enduring the fiery trial to raise him from the dead. If that is God's answer to you, don't worry, son or daughter, I will raise you up. If you don't get what you want now, if it gets worse, if it gets harder, if the fiery trial continues to beat you down and God's answer is merely, and it feels even bad saying it that way, is only, I will raise you up. Are you disappointed? You can't be. Because for many prayers, that will be his only answer. Do not worry, son or daughter. I will come and make all things new. I will raise you up. And you will be healed. And there will be no more suffering or pain for you anymore. You will be with me. You have to endure this fiery trial. I will help you. But I will raise you up. That's the flavor of what Jesus is saying in the prayer we're about to look at. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. So Jesus teaches us a few things about prayer in this. And I would be remiss if I didn't at least highlight them. He says to the disciples, watch and pray that you might not enter temptation. This should reflect the priorities of our prayers This is exactly what we looked at last week. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And Jesus says to the disciples, couldn't you have at least kept watch and prayed with me for one hour? 
Watch and pray that you might not enter temptation. And they're trying to pray maybe for a few minutes and then they fall asleep. And then when Christ returns, they wake up. And then he leaves and goes and prays again and they fall asleep. And just as an analogy, any kind of gathered prayer is meant to be an increase or an overflowing of what we're doing in our own lives. But even if we gather together and try to help each other pray more fervently and pray more scripturally, if Christ is not present, we just fall asleep. Maybe not literally, but in our spirits. And so the Spirit must help us. The Spirit Himself is praying for you with groanings too deep for words. That has the similar flavor to what Jesus is praying in the garden. Groanings too deep for words as He's sweating out drops of blood. That the Spirit is in you praying a similar posture towards the Father. And Mark, in his account, he says that Jesus prays, Abba, Father. The only other place you find that formulation in the New Testament is twice where Paul mentions it. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8.15 and from Galatians 4.6 And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You've been given the Spirit of God so that you too may pray as earnestly as Christ did in the garden, Abba, Father. You don't have to use those exact words, but the same Spirit moving in you with that eager appeal to the Father, that's how you ought to pray. You've been given the very Spirit of God to pray to God that very way. Do you need courage to face your fiery trial? This may be happening to you right now. I know I do. Look to Jesus as your great high priest in three major ways. One, learn how to pray. Look at his mannerisms in praying. Look at how he prays. Look at his motives in praying. Look at his reverence in praying. Look at the changing of his prayer as the Father begins to answer. But also look to his sacrifice, brothers and sisters. I don't know how I can emphasize this too much. The fiery trial you are going through or that you have ever gone through or will ever go through is not God's wrath. Jesus is the only one who had to drink the cup if you're in Christ. God is not punishing you. He is not punitive towards his sons and daughters. The fiery trial in your life is to prepare you for glory. These light momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If you're in Christ, what is going to happen to you, the suffering that you share in with Christ is not his wrath. You're not under wrath. Because Jesus drank the cup for you. And then look to the answer of the Father. I will raise you up and pray for grace that that would be enough for us in the cases where the answer is not what we want. 
And then He does drink the cup. So our Lord, Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, our great High Priest, drinks the cup. He's betrayed. He's arrested. He's abandoned. He's denied. He's put on trial multiple times throughout the night. Falsely accused, mocked, blasphemed. No sleep. He's beaten. Scourged. He carries the cross to the point of total bodily failure. And then by wicked pagan Roman soldiers, while the pretty religious leaders look on and blaspheme him more and mock him more, there the nails are driven through his hands and his feet and he's lifted up as a spectacle outside the city to agonize and die through the suffocation of his own blood and fluids filling his own lungs. He drank the cup. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Oh, God, what have we done? We've destroyed your only son. And after all this has taken place, what does Jesus do? While he is agonizing and waiting for the moment, his physical strength fails where he will have to yield up his spirit. What does he say? This is from Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There is often in our hearts an imposing fortress of bitterness built by you and built by the enemy because we will not forgive. It is not only a foothold for the enemy, it is a fortress. And what Christ shows us, Him as our example, is Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're committing the most heinous act of treason in all the universe, crucifying the very Lord of glory. Father, forgive them. You have not been sinned against as much as Jesus was. Period. You have no right to persist in unforgiveness in your heart. And Jesus himself singles out those who will not extend forgiveness. If you will not forgive others, neither will my Father in heaven forgive you. This is in the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 
We look at the cross, at the once-for-all-time nature of it, and think, I am forgiven. But we need to ask the Lord for forgiveness. If you think about the tax collector and the Pharisee, what does he say? Have mercy on me. Be merciful to me. Be propitious towards me, a sinner. That man went down to his house justified and not the other. Your posture towards the Lord should be one of forgiveness. Father, please forgive me my sins. We do look at the cross and we have been forgiven and that is the basis on which we are forgiven. But we ask for it each day as we live out our salvation day by day. Asking for forgiveness is uncomfortable. And extending true forgiveness is impossible without the Spirit. But this posture of being broken over sin and asking God for forgiveness, both historically and biblically, is what starts revival. In every case, you can't find an instance of revival in this nation, in any other nation, or in all the Bible, where it doesn't begin with the people of God, not people outside the covenant, the people of God being broken over sin and begging God for forgiveness. That's where it starts. Do you want to see revival? Do you want to see this nation swept again as it hasn't been in over a hundred years by the gospel and the power of God be broken over your sin? And the next prayer from the cross, Matthew 27, verses 45 through 49. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all of the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. This is a direct quotation from Psalm 22. But I don't think it's as if Jesus is hanging there on the cross, drinking the cup in full, and he's doing his Bible memorization recitation. The deepest and most honest, raw cries of your heart, the more mature you are in Christ, are Scripture. Have you ever noticed that? When you're at your most broken, when you're at your most desperate and honest before you, God, your prayers begin sounding like the Bible. They should. And that's what's happening here. The scripture is in his heart and he understands what's happening to him. And there's the agony of unanswered prayer. He prayed, Lord, let this pass from me. Father, I don't want to drink this. And he's crying out from that agony. He was forsaken. I want to read from uh, a pastor and seminary president. His name is Joel Beek. Uh, this is what he writes about this. Jesus' cry does not in any way diminish his deity. Jesus does not cease being God before, during, or after this. Jesus' cry does not divide his human nature from his divine person or destroy the Trinity. 
nor does it detach him from the Holy Spirit. The Son lacks the comforts of the Spirit, but he does not lose the holiness of the Spirit. And finally, it does not cause him to disavow his mission. Both the Father and the Son knew from all eternity that Jesus would become the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. It is unthinkable that the Son of God might question what is happening or be perplexed when his Father's loving presence departs. Rather, Jesus is expressing the agony of unanswered supplication. Unanswered, Jesus feels forgotten of God. He's also expressing the agony of unbelievable stress. It is the kind of roaring mentioned in Psalm 22. The roar of desperate agony without rebellion. It is the hellish cry uttered when the undiluted wrath of God overwhelms the soul. It is heart-piercing, heaven-piercing, and hell-piercing. Further, Jesus is expressing the agony of unmitigated sin. All the sins of his people and the hell that they deserved for eternity are laid upon him. And Jesus is expressing the agony of unassisted solitariness. In his hour of greatest need comes a pain unlike anything the son has ever experienced. And I would add that no one else in all eternity has experienced. His father's abandonment totally. When Jesus most needs encouragement, no voice cries from heaven, this is my beloved son. No angel at this point is sent to strengthen him. He doesn't hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That doesn't resound in his ears. The woman who supported him, the women who supported him are silent. The disciples, cowardly and terrified, have fled Feeling disavowed by all, Jesus endures the way of suffering alone, deserted and forsaken in utter darkness. Every detail of this horrific abandonment declares the heinous character of our sins. So David prays in Psalm 22, as he feels forsaken by God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, as he's on the cross in the utter, infinite nature of God's wrath being poured out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is something, even though it might have felt like it in the past, that you have never experienced. And if you are in Christ, you will never experience this. This is what Christ comes to save you from being utterly separated from the goodness and love and mercy of God forever. All of the eternity of God's pure wrath for the sins of millions poured out in a moment of time. Friend, if you do not know Christ, why would you not repent today? Why would you not trust in such a great high priest? 
Why would you persist in your sins? Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die? You don't want this. And Jesus, such a one, with such love and such mercy, he drank it to the full. So that you and I could be saved. So that you and I could know him. From Luke chapter 23. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light faded, failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn into, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This phrase, commit my spirit, echoes back to the passage we looked at in 1 Peter 4. Do you entrust your life to God? Do you entrust your heart to him? Christianity is, in fact, welcoming the Holy Spirit into our hearts. The love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But more than that, it is entrusting our hearts, our lives, our souls to God. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Even for Job, in the darkest moments of his suffering, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Even as he's wrestling with the desire to plead his case, he says, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Even in that moment of frustration and not understanding what God is doing, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Have you entrusted your heart to God in that way? Yet not as I will but as you will. God's purposes are accomplished often through loss and suffering. It's from Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And it'd be great if He just stopped talking there. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In Acts 14, verses 21 and 22, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And it'd be nice if he just stopped talking and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap a harvest if we do not give up, brothers and sisters. The flavor of these prayers has been very passionate, but also very sorrowful. And I apologize for that being the flavor of this message. It won't end that way as we get to the prayer in Emmaus. But you can't appreciate Jesus's ministry to you as your great high priest unless you understand what he endured for you, what you have been spared from and the offer of salvation and the stunning nature of God's love and his forgiveness and the undeserved nature of this infinite grace. That such a one as Christ would drink the full cup of God's wrath for you. 
That's the kind of message that drives you to tell someone even that you don't know. Hey, have you heard about the good news of Jesus? That is the kind of message. That is the kind of truth that inspires you to say to a family member or a friend that you've lost saying, hey, have you heard of the good news of Jesus? I know I may have told it to you 50 or 60 times already, but have you heard? Do you understand what he's done for you, what he has offered to you freely? Commit your spirit to him, brothers and sisters. There's no need to argue your case to his face like Job wanted to. By the spirit, merely trust him. Oh, for grace to trust him more. And then he died. The son of God really died. It's a scandal. It's travesty. And it's abhorrent and it's unspeakable that the Son of God would die. But this is the mercy of God. This is the love of God for you. Don't let anything else, your inner voice or your emotions or your passions, take the place of this rock-solid, world-changing, Satan-crushing truth. Jesus Christ died to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If you can let that be the rock-solid foundation of your life, set everything else aside, you will do well. It's the wrath of God, the love of God, the purest holiness of God, the full justice of God, and the vilest concentration of all the wickedness of sin concentrated in one moment so that you would know Him that you could see his glory. And then, after being dead for three days, he walks out of the tomb alive. Proving for all time, for those who believe in him, there is no more wrath. It's dealt with. The cup has been emptied in him for you if you're in him. There were witnesses to the resurrection. We actually talked about this passage that we'll end with for our vacation Bible school. And as I was studying it, I saw things that I had not appreciated before. And I'll just relate to you the story. So there's two disciples going from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're distressed. They're talking about how Jesus, their Savior, has been killed. And they're wondering what has happened because these women have come from the tomb and told them that the body is missing. And some of the other disciples told them that they had seen him. And so they're wondering what has gone on. And maybe they're feeling a little bit left out because Jesus hasn't yet shown himself to them. And Jesus doesn't respond just by revealing himself immediately. He shows them the scriptures. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow to understand the scriptures. And even while preventing them from seeing that he has been raised to life, he walks them through the scriptures to sure up their faith. And then we pick it up in verse 28, Luke 24, verses 28 through 31. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. 
And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. This pattern of taking bread, blessing it, and breaking it is basically identical to the pattern of the Lord's Supper. From which we can infer that he's also praying a prayer of thanksgiving. Cannot underestimate, uh, underestimate or repeat too many times the need to know that we're in a covenant of grace, undeserving recipients of God's grace. In the blessing of the bread, hearkening back to the Lord's Supper, that is when they recognize him. That is when they know it's him. It's the Lord. We get to prayerfully and thankfully receive Jesus and receive his blessings in his broken body and shed blood. And that's how we recognize him. That's where the relationship is built. As you pray, as you are seeking Christ's blessings and God's blessing, appealing to God on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ, that is where you get to know the Lord himself. You want to enter into the inner chamber, the Holy of Holies, and to see the glory of Christ even now? Pray in the Spirit on the basis of Christ's broken body and shed blood, appealing to God on the basis of the sacrifice of your great high priest, and there you will recognize him. Your eyes will be opened. The eyes of your heart will actually see the real resurrected Son of God as he manifests himself to you. So we've discussed so much about the glory of God and the glory of our great high priest. And we're going to be in some hard passages as we finish chapter 5 and begin chapter 6. Some of you need to take a step further and pursue the deeper things of God and to grow in maturity of Christ, not laying again a foundation of the elementary teachings of Christ. Some of you might be very behind, but today can begin a step in the right direction of pursuing that knowledge and maturity in him. And some of you today need to take the first step. Why would you die? Why would you not accept the offer of forgiveness in such a great high priest? May today be the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit, give us the heart that would be stunned by your grace. Stunned by your love for us, stunned by the fact that your son drank the cup in full. And for those who are in Christ, there is no more wrath. May we come together next week seeking to celebrate the fact that we have been forgiven as we take the body and blood of Jesus represented in the cup and the bread. Help us celebrate the fact that there is no more wrath. And draw us near to you, even today and through this week, as we ramp up to take that holy meal together. Show yourself to us. Help us pray on the basis of the gospel. Let us know you. Show yourself to us even today. And for those who do not know you, 
May today be the day of salvation. I pray these things in Jesus' name.